Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who was charged with the reckless homicide of Joseph Rosenbaum, the intentional homicide of Anthony Huber, and the attempted intentional homicide of Gage Grosskreutz. As Rittenhouse was the undisputed shooter of all three men, his legal team argued that the shootings were in self-defense. In our last episode, we examined the testimony offered by officers Pep Moretti and Jason Krieger, the two Kenosha policemen who allowed Kyle Rittenhouse to pass by their vehicle immediately following the shootings. On today's episode, we begin our coverage of the testimony of Gage Grosskreutz, the third individual that Kyle Rittenhouse shot that evening and the only shooting victim to survive. That's all coming up right after the break. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. On Monday, November 8th, 2021, the second week of the Kyle Rittenhouse trial begins with Prosecutor Thomas Binger calling as a witness the one man who was shot by Kyle Rittenhouse and survived, Gage Grosskreutz. The bullet from Rittenhouse's AR-15 hit Grosskreutz in the right bicep and appeared in contemporaneous photographs to virtually obliterate his muscle. As he takes the stand, the witness sports longish hair that covers much of his ears and a neatly groomed beard and mustache. He wears a dark gray suit, a gray collared shirt, and a silver tie, and large black earrings that cover most of his earlobes. Prosecutor Binger begins his questioning by asking Grosskreutz about his criminal record. Have you ever been convicted of a crime? Yes. How many times? One. Later, news outlets would report that in addition to a 2015 conviction for drunk driving, Grosskreutz faced a second DUI charge that was dismissed just six days before the Rittenhouse trial began, based upon a ruling that the underlying traffic stop was unlawful. Grosskreutz also has a prior misdemeanor conviction for intoxicated possession of a firearm, several dismissed criminal complaints, and one expunged felony conviction. However, Prosecutor Binger limits Grosskreutz's testimony about his criminal past to his single conviction. He then moves on to ask the witness about his professional training, establishing that Grosskreutz was first trained as an emergency medical technician and then moved on to train as a paramedic. At the time of the shootings, he was working as a paramedic in nearby Racine, Wisconsin. Binger asks him to distinguish between the EMT and the paramedic jobs. Can you help us understand the difference between an EMT and a paramedic? Uh, Yes, I can. Um, The, like I said, a quantitative way to delineate the two is the amount of coursework. Um, A simpler way that I like to put it to people is uh, paramedics can put new holes in people. So some of the, sorry, go ahead. Some of the things, for example, are administering IV medications. So knowing how to start an IV. also, cardiocentesis, sorry, um, which is essentially a life-saving uh, maneuver, which involves um, extracting fluid from the heart. 
Um, there's also a great deal of pharmacology knowledge that needs to be known. For example, uh, EMTs, EMT basics, can administer six different kinds of medications. Paramedics, and again, it depends on the jurisdiction that you're working in, but nationally, uh, you're taught a little over 50 different kinds of medications. And that's ju not just names, but it's indications, contraindications, or when to use it, when to not use it, um, dosages, which can be dependent on weights, age. Um, and then there's also um, just the general knowledge that's known. So while there are a lot more technical skills that you learn in pharmacology and things like that, it's also being able to identify and properly assess. Binger asks Grosskreutz about treating individuals who have been shot. Were there ever times in which you had to deal with someone suffering from a gunshot wound? Yes, I have. What was that like? It's difficult. Um, gunshots can be very traumatic. Uh, and I mean traumatic in the sense of the, the physiology of what it can do to the body. Obviously, there are, you know, numerous factors that go into it, the size of the, the caliber, where the person's shot, how many times. Um, and when you are practicing in school, it is much different from when you actually go and put your hands on somebody who is, is bleeding. Um, there's lots of blood, um, screaming. Generally speaking, there's somebody there that's frantic. So then not only are you having to focus on the patient, but you have to deal with the surrounding situation, which can be potentially, like I said, a frantic family member, say if it's an accident or uh, self-inflicted. Um, but also it can be a dangerous situation to go into because generally speaking, I mean, you, you shoot people to hurt them. And there's always that potential of continued on-scene violence. Um, so it can be very hectic. Um, it definitely doesn't get easier the more you do it. Uh, maybe going through the motions, um, you know, going through your, your mental checklist of things that you need to, need to do. Um, but it definitely doesn't get easier watching that, hearing that. After Grosskreutz explains more about his education, Prosecutor Binger asks him about his activities during the summer of 2020. Did you spend time that summer uh, attending any protests or demonstrations? I did. Can you tell us about that? After the death of George Floyd, um, I found myself demonstrating in Milwaukee. Uh, this was, I want to say, maybe two days after George Floyd's death. And I was out um, with a friend of mine who I actually took EMT Basic with, and we were out demonstrating. Um, we were seeing what the scene was like. Um, we didn't make signs or anything like that, but we, like I said, we found ourselves down in Milwaukee. Um, and when you say you were demonstrating, what exactly were you doing? Well, I think what I was specifically doing was just being in attendance. But I want to make sure we understand what you mean by demonstrating. Um, were there people damaging property? No. Lighting fires? No. Uh, was there any violent clash with police? No. What time of day, if you recall, were these uh, demonstrations? Um, that specific first one, generally 
late morning into late afternoon. Um, so what would other folks be doing at these demonstrations? People would be holding signs. They would be chanting various things, um, driving cars down, down the street. Tell us what happened after that. So after walking for a few hours, um, kind of starting to wrap the day up and all of a sudden somebody starts yelling medic, medic. Um, and I'm walking, like I said, with my friend who I took EMT basic with and he looks at me and he says, that, that's you. I was like, oh, I guess you're right. <laughs> um, and then I came over uh, to a patient who had uh, tripped and fallen over a curb. My guess is they just weren't paying attention, got their, got their feet caught up. Um, and the patient was, was all right after an assessment, um, advised to go to the hospital. Um, following that though, I noticed that there was no established or even organized sort of first aid presence at these demonstrations. Um, and from there, uh, I was talking with my friend who I'd taken EMT basic with, and we decided that we were going to offer our services voluntarily. And did you do that? We did. Tell us about that experience. So I had uh, talked to some of the prominent organizers uh, in Milwaukee, and we kind of laid out a, a game plan or you know, uh, how we were going to organize this. Um, Essentially, as medics, we decided that we weren't going to be actively uh, participating in any of the demonstrations. Uh, I think there's a, essentially a, a, an ethic code that if you are providing medical care, it, it, you shouldn't necessarily choose a side uh, because everybody has the right to protest or demonstrate, assemble, freedom of speech, but also everybody has the right to do that safely. So very early on, we decided that we weren't going to actively participate. Uh, in these demonstrations. From there, uh, my friend and I <clears throat> outfitted his uh, pickup truck into a, essentially a, a mobile first aid station. In the time period that followed after that, uh, did you and your friend with this mobile first aid station uh, provide medical assistance at these uh, demonstrations? Yes, we did. On approximately how many occasions would you say you did that? We got objects for relevance. I think it's relevant for many reasons. Um, it's establishing his background as a paramedic, uh, which was come, came into play on this particular evening. I think it also is uh, drawing a contrast between him and the defendant. Uh, I'll, I'll uh, overrule the objection on the first ground. How many, approximately how many times would you say you were out there providing medical care at these demonstrations? I would say about 75 days prior to um, August. And during that time period, what sort of uh, medical situations would you assist in? Primarily, um, it was essentially people not taking care of themselves. I mean, it was a hot summer. People weren't hydrating. Uh, people weren't eating. Um, people weren't wearing proper footwear. You mentioned earlier that you felt sort of an ethical obligation not to pick and choose your the people you would treat. Um, did you treat anyone who needed it, no matter what their political beliefs were or what side they were on? Yes, absolutely. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Binger then begins to ask the witness about the day of the shootings. I want to move to the night of August 25th, 2020. On that particular evening, did you come here to Kenosha? I did. Had you been working at your normal job that day? I was. And do you recall approximately what time you left uh, to come down to Kenosha? 7 p.m. Did you travel alone? I did. Were you part of any sort of larger group or organization that was coming to Kenosha that night? I was not. Why did you personally decide to come down here that night? Essentially for the same reasons that I stated earlier. Um, we were all aware of what was happening in the days following Jacob Blake's shooting. Um, people do have a right to demonstrate. Um, I'm no way advocating for property damage or anything like that. But given the, I think we all can agree, chaotic situation of those three days following Jacob Blake's shooting, um, there was certainly a, a propensity for violence. Um, or maybe not just violence, but injuries at, at, in general. Um, and so for the same reasons that I stated earlier, I, I, yeah, I've, I've delivered patients to uh, freighter down here. I, I'm familiar with the area. And um, I felt that given my level of experience and knowledge that I could be of assistance to people. When you came down here that night, did you bring any of your own medical supplies? I did. What kind of supplies did you bring with you? Um, brought a tourniquet, um, what's called hemostatic gauze, also commonly called quick clot, um, chest wound seals, um, some gloves, some saline spray. How were you dressed that evening? I had a uh, black shirt. Uh, with a uh, Wu-Tang sign on it. It's a, a pretty famous uh, group. Um, I had khaki shorts. I had tennis shoes. And also I had a blue hat um, with large lettering that said paramedic on the, uh, I guess, on the front of it. Were you carrying any of your equipment with you? I was. How were you doing that? I had it in um, a, a small backpack. Were you armed? I was. Tell us about that. I believe in the Second Amendment. I am, I am for uh, people's right to, to carry and bear arms. Um, and that night was no different than any other day. Um, it's keys, phone, wallet, gun. Did you have a permit to carry a concealed weapon? I did. Was it in effect on August 25th, 2020? It was not. Had it expired? It had. And you had not renewed it? I had not. 
Having guided the witness to concede that he was carrying his weapon without a valid permit, as he did with Grosskreutz's criminal conviction, Binger quickly moves on from that subject. When you came down here, how did you carry your gun? I had my handgun uh, holstered in the small of my back. What type of gun was it? It was a Gen 4 Glock 27, so it is a smaller framed 40 caliber handgun. Was it loaded? It was. Do you recall if there was a round in the chamber? That night, I don't. The prosecutor then moves back to Grosskreutz's activities after he arrived in Kenosha on August 25th, 2020. When you came down here to Kenosha that night with your equipment, etc., did you specifically seek to meet out with any particular person or any group or anything along those lines? No, I did not. So tell us what you did when you first came down here. So after I arrived in Kenosha, um, I parked uh, several blocks away. Um, this is both for safety and protection of my property. Um, I put on my equipment, which is essentially my handgun and my medical supplies. Um, and then I walked towards the courthouse um, from there. Um, things were already there was already confrontation between demonstrators and the police. Um, and by confrontation, I mean people were throwing water bottles. The police were uh, shooting pepper balls from the top of the courthouse. That, you know, that sort of thing. Do you recall approximately how many people you uh, gave medical assistance to that night? I don't know the exact number, um, but if you wanted me to estimate, I'd say around 10. Uh, what was the most serious situation that you dealt with? Apart from myself? Yes, as, as a medic treating the, the other folks that were out there. Um, there was an individual, um, a younger patient, who had been shot in the uh, crease of her left arm um, with what we presumed to be a rubber bullet. Um, fired from one of the police and she had sustained a pretty, pretty decent laceration. I mean, there was pretty good cut from it. So whatever had hit her had some force behind it. Binger uses video and still frames to present images to the jury of Grosskreutz engaging in this treatment. He then moves on to the witness's own recording of video footage that night. Were you also taking your own video recording of what was going on? I was. Can you tell us about that, please? I can. Um, so essentially when there wasn't a, a medical emergency or somebody seeking assistance, um, I am a uh, ACLU legal observer, and I decided that the next best thing that I could do that night um, was just simply record. Was this something where you were just recording it onto your own equipment, or was it being shared in any way? It was being recorded from my cell phone, but it was through a Facebook live stream. Were you broadcasting live on Facebook while you were doing that? I was. Prosecutor Binger next moves on to Grosskreutz's first encounter with the defendant. Did there come a time in which you encountered a group of folks uh, that were armed in front of the 59th Street car source location? I did. Can you tell us about that? After the police had moved the demonstrators from 
the park. Uh, they started to form um, a, a line, which they would then advance, moving the demonstrators south down Sheridan Road. So let's say maybe 10, 15 minutes after they, they started clearing the park out, I uh, found myself outside of the 59th Street car source. Um, as I walked up, um, one of the first things I had noticed that there were people um, armed with long guns, um, AR-15 type weapons, uh, similar to the defendants, and they had been on the roof. Uh, I recall like three of them, I think. And um, there were also individuals on the ground, similarly dressed, similarly armed. On the ground, I recalled four seeing initially. Um, Do you remember the first time that you observed the defendant that evening? I do. Can you tell us about that? There was an individual um, who I had assumed came from the demonstration. The reason I assumed that is because this person was coming from north, traveling southbound. Um, this individual is being supported uh, by two other individuals, kind of like that, uh, if you were to hurt your leg and you needed somebody to, to help you. Um, I had observed this uh, individual um, come closer to the car source as the defendant had been essentially offering medical aid. Um, and then that was the, the first time that uh, I saw the defendant. And with that, we conclude this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Join us on our next episode as we continue Prosecutor Binger's direct examination of Gage Grosskreutz, during which the witness shares what happened leading up to and during the shootings. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial at our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced by Chris Taracone and Aaron Karenik, and it was edited by Chris Taracone. Our consulting producer is Brittany Bookbinder. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and Trial Audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Kyle Rittenhouse.